As content writers and copywriters gain experience and work on different types of projects throughout their career, many of them express interest in doing less content work like blog posts and more sales copy work like sales pages. There are a lot of reasons for this, but one big reason is that sales pages are closely tied to the sale of the product or service that you're writing about, so it's easier to justify charging higher prices for the work that you do. The sales page leads directly to the sale, whereas a blog post or a case study may be a couple steps away, and so it's a little harder to ask for big money. Hi, I'm Rob Marsh, one of the founders of the Copywriter Club, and on today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, my co-founder Kira Hug and I talk about sales pages, how we approach them, the research that we do, the formulas that we use when we write them, and our secrets for making sure that they work as promised. If you write sales copy or you want to write sales pages in the future, you may want to stick around for this episode. But first, this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground. It is, as I have told you the past few weeks, the very best membership for copywriters and content writers. It is an amazing value for what you get at just $87 a month. There's a monthly group coaching call with Kira and I where you get answers to your questions, advice for overcoming business or client or writing challenges. There are weekly copy critiques where we give you feedback on your copy and content. This past week, we looked at a, a sales page, a copywriter service page, and an email. Uh, and we do that every single week. It's a good opportunity to get feedback on your copy and just think a little differently about what you're writing. If you were to hire a coach to give you that kind of feedback, you'd be paying hundreds of dollars and it's included in your membership with the underground. We also have added new trainings. There's an AI tool review where we demonstrate something that we're doing with AI or we show you a new tool or a prompt so that you can get more done as a writer. The massive library of training and templates, including a legal document and all kinds of processes, standards, SOPs, that kind of stuff. The community is full of copywriters who are ready to help you with just about anything. Sometimes they even share leads, which, uh, again, a single lead could pay for the underground for years. If you're interested in a community for copywriters that is focused on helping you grow, helping you build the business that you want, find out more at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU. That's TCU as in the Copywriter Underground. Okay, with that, let's go to our discussion and uh, let, yeah, let's talk a little bit about sales pages. Okay, Kira, just you and me today. And... Uh, I don't know. Where, where do you want to start? Well, I think it's exciting that we are talking together twice in a row, back to back. We haven't yeah, that hasn't happened we've a long never time. done that on this podcast. Usually it's like one podcast for the two of us, and then maybe 10 later we get back on together. Yeah, so it's definitely work. definitely been a while. If it has happened at all, I'd have it's to go never back happened. through. Yeah, maybe not. Probably not. Yeah. So I, it's probably because you and I talk to each other a lot, but we don't record those and share those as podcasts. <laughs> so maybe we're opening up the doors a little bit to some of our personal conversations here. I don't know. Uh, but hopefully people uh, will enjoy what we have to share today. Well, it's also snowing here in Maine. It's the first snow of the season. And okay, it slowed down. It stopped, but it was snowing all morning. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it put me in such a good mood. Do you have, you can't bring uh, me down right now. Do you have a blanket and hot chocolate? I've been, I've fire? been like making stew and like just drinking hot water and yeah. Yeah. I'm so ready for the holidays. Wait, you're drinking hot water 
Like I just drink hot water. I just drink hot. Okay, so I stopped drinking caffeine since London when I got sick because I felt awful anyway. So anytime I get sick, I'm like, well, I may as well cut out some of my vices because I already feel awful. So I'm not drinking caffeine, and I I drink a good amount of caffeine. So now I just drink hot water throughout the day with like chia seeds, which I is you know gives you some energy. Sure. I haven't tried that, so I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. I'm, it's uh, different. Yeah. So yeah, giving up caffeine, like that's my one vice, and that would be. It's hard. I don't know. It. I have done it before. You know where I've gone months or whatever. I know I can do it, but uh, I also just like having a Coke Zero. Like it's kind of my treat during yeah. the day. Yeah. It's hard because I enjoy I enjoy drinking a like a latte or a coffee or tea. I enjoy that process, the ritual. I enjoy going to coffee shops, but also you can go to coffee shops and get a decaf. So um, it's been kind of fun. But anyway, that's why I'm drinking hot water. I'm trying to stay hydrated. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because as we were putting together just a few ideas of what we should talk about today, I put in three questions that are kind of like warm up questions or getting to know Rob and Kira questions. uh, And I pulled them from an email newsletter that I just found recently called Content Prompt. It's a Substack, and it's a really useful tool if you write daily emails. It, it it lists out a bunch of stuff like what happened on this day in history or what this day is, suppose, you know, like National Taco Day or whatever. And then it also has a bunch of questions you can ask yourself. It's just, you know, for anybody who writes newsletters and, and it finds themselves really struggling with that, it's a it's a content prompt. And so I just pulled a couple of questions. And one of those questions was, uh, do you have a ritual to start your day? And kind of talking about drinking hot water. Is that a ritual? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I gave away the whole ritual. That's all it is. Um, yeah. I mean, well, why don't we kick off with you and your morning ritual? Yeah. So my normal ritual is, you know, I get up at five and I go for a run. Uh, and, or a couple of days a week, I don't go for a run. I'll get up and lift weights and, and I'm not like a huge, you know, heavy weight lifter, but, uh, you know, just want to kind of stretch my muscles and keep them strong. I haven't done that since London because as I shared on, I think last week's podcast, I've hurt my neck. And so I've been doing some physical therapy to, you know, get back to uh, health where, you know, moving my body or running won't, um, send shocks of pain down my spine. Uh, but my normal ritual is to get up and exercise. And then, you know, I shower, dress and uh, try to read a little bit before I start work. That's usually what happens. And I'm hoping to get back to that soon because I definitely miss it when I wake up, you know, an hour later or whatever, because I'm not getting up to run. And I, it's just different. Uh, I, I miss the exercise. So what what's your... So wait, and you shower, you shower every morning? Yes, of course. Yeah, I don't want to. Oh, of course, yeah. I don't shower every. <laughs> I don't shower every morning. Yes, I have to. I mean, otherwise, I would stink, especially because I run and exercise first thing in the morning. So oh, okay. yeah, I don't want to like Fair. sweat and not smell good. So okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So I, so showering I, isn't your morning ritual. What is? What is? No, your it definitely ritual? is not. I and I run a lot, but I just don't really care if I stink. Um, yeah. So my morning ritual has is shifts frequently because of the little ones that inhabit my house. Um, It was for a while, waking up at 3.30 a.m. since the fall, since September, no, since August, which was intense, which probably is why in our previous podcast, I talked about burnout and getting sick. (laughs) So (laughs) I have shifted the time because I'm trying to be less pushy 
and militant with myself, and I'm trying to be slightly more gentle and kind to myself. So I push my time from 3.30 to 4.45 a.m., maybe 5 a.m. And then there are days where I'm like, if I want to sleep in until the kids get up around 6.15, I'll do that. So I'm listening to my body a little bit more. Um, but once I get up, I get my hot water from the kitchen with my chia seeds and apple cider vinegar. And I go into my, I call it a library, but my kids call it the TV room. And I you know, plot myself on the sofa with big blankets because it's cold here in Maine and set the fire stove on to get the fire going. And I meditate for four minutes because four minutes seems to be the right amount of time where I'm like, okay, I'm all right. All right. That's enough. I think I'm done. And then I start my deep work time, which usually involves writing or thinking or working on a big project that I need some brain power that I can't typically do in the afternoon. Um, and that's what it is. And I get a little bit of time before, I mean, my kids get up so early now that there's that's why I was getting up at 3.30 because there's just not as much time in the mornings before like the family routine and the family rituals start. Um, but it's okay. I get a little bit of time. And so I'm happy if I get anything before everybody else wakes up. And then we start that routine to get all the kids out of the house. And the last one, Homer, is out of the house by 8.30. And then I start my work day. So when you say you write as part of that, is it like morning pages, journaling, or are you like thinking about business, emails? What, what are you writing? I would like to say it's journaling. And I will say that I have started journaling in the last week because I was so inspired by John Biakovich, and who was a guest presenter in London, and he journals all the time. So he basically was like, I write down everything that happens, and then I always have content. That's why he's able to write a daily newsletter. And I was so inspired by that. And I'm so hungry for that. And I'm also forgetting so many details in my life that I want to capture. So the goal is to ease into that. But no, what I do now is usually like, okay, what email do I need to write for the copywriter club? Or do I need to write copy for my clients? Um, that all happens in the morning. I can't really fit it in elsewhere throughout the day. Okay. That makes sense. I should do more writing as part of my ritual, but right now it's mostly exercise and a little bit of reading. So I also, I, I forgot to mention, before I go run, I usually do sit in my chair that's here in my office and spend two or three minutes just kind of, I'm not sure meditation is the right word, but just trying to like free my brain of any ideas and just focus on my breathing for a couple of minutes. It just kind of relaxes me. So we do that similarly as well. Yeah. I would like to expand that from four minutes to 10 minutes at some point, but that's kind of where I am right now. Four minutes yeah. is where I get antsy and I'm like, ah. Good for me too. Uh, maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe my brain just doesn't work the way that a uh, Zen monk's brain would work. So, but it, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing for me right now is just being flexible and which is hard sometimes because um, my morning routine might just disappear if Homer's not sleeping, which he hasn't been sleeping well since I got back from London. And so he gets up 4.30, 4, 5 a.m. sometimes. And Yikes. so it just, you know, just have to adapt. But, um, but I do like having some type of ritual. Yeah, I like it. Clearly, okay, well, that's important to us. Yes. One more question for, for the getting to know you. I'm going to ask you, what sound annoys you the most? That's such a, that's such a great kind of a and weird, weird question. question. Yeah. Um, I hate the sound of <laughs> any type of bouncing ball in my house, like a basketball or a soccer ball. 
in the house because that's the sound I hear all the time. There's always someone like kicking a ball or bouncing a ball. It drives me insane. Also, my boys are really loud. I do not like loud things. I like quiet. And so both of my boys annoy me because they're so loud. And then the last one is Henry started this thing. My eight-year-old has started this thing where he flips um, a water bottle to see if he can get it to land straight up. And so he's doing that constantly. It's just like constantly hitting the table. And he's so proud of himself. And I'm just like, I can't just, <laughs> just stop. You're driving, you're driving me nuts. That's awesome. So I just don't like any sound, any sound. It's funny. It, well, it's funny you mentioned your boys are loud. When my kids are all home, my house gets very loud. And I mean, my kids are, you know, 18 to 25 and they're very funny and they all get along relatively well. So, you know, when we're together playing games or even just talking and joking with each other, uh, things get really loud. We've, we've, you know, we're a loud family and I, I, part of me feels like we should be quieter, but also <laughs> it just kind of works. My, you know, I, I love being with my kids as adults and it's just a lot of fun to, to be with them. And, it, and it's loud. I think if people were in a home, they'd be like, holy cow, you guys, typical American loud mouths, you know, <laughs> trying to yell over each other. And, and, and it's not anger. It's just, it's just like joyously loud. So. Yeah. That's good though. That's like the joyous loud. That's good. I think some, some of my, the loudness in my house is not joyful. It's like kids fighting. Or That's a little kid thing. I, I think like it, the they grow out of it. Yeah. 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 But as for the sounds that drive me crazy. So yeah, I was thinking of a couple. So one uh, that absolutely drives me nuts is running water at night. Mm -hmm. So I, if I wake up and I hear running water, I'm like, Oh, did a pipe break? You know, do I need to like go check is the basement flooding or like, is some, did somebody leave a sink running or, uh, usually it's just like the sprinklers just kicked on or something, or maybe it's raining and I can hear that, you know, the dripping, but that one, I'm, I'm not sure that I would hate that. I hate it, but it, it wakes me up. Like I, if there's running water and I'm dead asleep, I will hear it and wake up. So that's so uh, weird because Ezra has the same issue with running water where he like just freaks out because he thinks there's something leaking and he has yeah. this fear of leaking water because of the damage it can cause. And I'm, I'm just like, what? It, it sounds- It, it wakes me up. Me. It wakes me up. And then another sound that I really don't like, and um, I almost hate to admit it, but the crying babies. Like <laughs> newborns, newborns are cute. Like newborns have that cute, like squawk cry. But yeah. once they're, you know, three or four months to, no. you know, five years old or whatever, the crying baby sound is, is I mean, obviously it's supposed to be annoying. I mean- we, we evolved to make sure. sure that that noise gets attention and uh, it, it's bad. And I, I always, you know, when, when I see, you know, parents struggling with kids that are crying, I feel bad for them. Uh, you know, I know that that sometimes is really embarrassing, but oh, I hate that sound. You, you know, I hear it. I'm just like, oh, somebody, somebody take care of that child. So if you're on an airplane and there's a crying baby near you, are you the adult who's just kind of like the passenger who's just kind of rolling your eyes or are you you know, empathizing with them or are you just like, Oh, I can't stand it. So I, I mean, I have been that 
parent before. Yeah. And, and so I definitely empathize, but I have yeah. noise canceling headphones. Like, you know, there is a reason those are invented and I always travel with noise canceling headphones for that, for that very reason, because it does drive <laughs> me crazy. I feel so bad for those parents that are struggling with, it. I know, you know, there's sometimes there's nothing you can do in that situation. You know, your child's not going to respond, but so yeah, I empathize. I feel so sorry for them, but that doesn't mean that the noise doesn't just drive me crazy. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, I'm usually the one who's like trying to help the mom because I'm like, ah, I know how hard this is. Like, let me help you. Yeah. It's, that's, that's hard. Okay. Well, that, that's maybe enough about us. Uh, too much. I, it's too much about us. Like that's just too much information about us. Yeah, Perhaps, perhaps we shouldn't do too many warm up <laughs> questions. We'll, we'll see uh, how, how people respond to that. But uh, today we, we want to talk a little bit about sales pages and, you know, we've interviewed a lot of guests, uh, copywriters who write sales pages. A few of them have shared some of their secrets. So, you know, some of the things that they do, but I don't know that you and I have ever talked in depth about our approach to sales pages. And this is something that you and I write quite a few of for our clients, for the copywriter club. You know, it's, it's one of the main things that we write. Maybe email is the thing that we write the most, but uh, I, I don't know. I thought it might be interesting for us just to jump in and talk a little bit about our approach, how we do it, and maybe even start by, you know, how do we land these kinds of projects? You know, how, when, when you started out, Kara, like, how did you land your first sales page? Oh my gosh. Um, through my first sales page was through a cop, another copywriter who handed me the project because she didn't want to work on the project. Um, and it, and I didn't even understand what a sales page was. So I was just like, it was my second project and I was just like, sure, I just need to make some money and I'm hungry for it. It was a long form sales page and I had no structure to it, no formula for it. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I think it was okay. I also wasn't paid very much, so I don't feel that bad about it, but I had no idea what I was doing. So yeah, it was through a referral through another copywriter. I think that's a great way to go. What about, what about you? Yeah. I, I'm not sure that I can remember. I mean, I've written a ton of sales copy, you know, I didn't launch as a freelancer. And so, you know, I was in-house for, you know, more than 10 years, 15, almost 15 years before I really uh, took on my own business. So I had written all kinds of sales copy, you know, magazine type ads, television copy. And so, you know, uh, I, you know, trying to think like, okay, my first freelance project like that, I think it came from a pitch. I think I, you know, pitched the client. Uh, wow. I was probably, I probably started with writing some content and then they also needed sales copy. And so I pitched them on that and started writing and, and, uh, you know, again, same as you, everybody has their first sales page and it's really hard to know exactly what to do without a formula, without having done several of them. I certainly knew what sales copy was supposed to do. So I don't think it was awful, but, uh, I guarantee if I were to you know pull that up, even if I had it in somewhere, you know, in a, in a folder somewhere, I'd be embarrassed by, you know, the, the approach. And so, yeah, I, I think, there's a lot of growth that happens as you start to write them, as you start to learn about persuasion, but there's kind of a pattern that, you know, I see when I look at other sales pages that, you know, they, they tend to follow a formula. It's not the same thing all the time, you know, and there are different ways to start sales letters out. There's different ways to, you know, intrigue, you know, whether you agitate a pain or whether you build excitement and curiosity. Um, but, you know, you're, you're introducing some kind of an idea, you're introducing a, a product and you're asking for a sale ultimately throughout the page. Yeah. So, um, 
What is your process like today when you sit down to actually work on a sales page? Yeah, so uh, there's a few things that I do. So on research, uh, and this is actually something that we've outlined in our copywriting mastery course uh, is these four areas of research, but I look at what the product is specifically, what it does. I try to get a copy of that, you know, if it's a course or if it's software or whatever, I want to get in and play around with it uh, and, and experience it so I can see how it works. So I, I do some research on the product itself. I want to know more about the person behind the product. So maybe it's a company or a brand or it's an expert, you know, their story. So looking at that uh, person as well. I, obviously, you want to talk to or learn more about the customer that you're selling it to. So that's you know, area number three. If I can, I'll do a survey to uh, buyers. Uh, I want to talk to people who have used the product. Um, sometimes if it's a new product, that's not available. And so you need to do some guessing and, and trying to suss out who that audience is. And there are certainly ways to do that without uh, necessarily doing things like surveys. And then the fourth piece is looking at competitors, if there are competitors, and there usually are, because I want to understand how other people are going to market so that I don't become a me too message. You know, you, you need to be able to stand out. So I start with that kind of research. And then, you know, I, I follow uh, a couple of formulas, uh, you know, when I sit down to write. And I think you probably do something similar. But there are a couple of formulas that have been floating out around the internet. One is by Clayton Makepeace. Um, it's on a, a PDF that's, you know, like I said, it's, it's out there on the internet and a lot of people have referred to it. I actually saw Clayton teach a slightly different version of that um, outline that I, that I really like. Um, and I, I'll just kind of go through the, the different steps and then my version that's a little bit shorter, but uh, Clayton would, would teach, you know, you, you want to grab attention with that headline. Um, it should be, you know, benefit driven or surprising idea or a really big idea, big promise. You want to support that headline with some kind of a subhead. There might be some bullets that, you know, just really help uh, intensify that idea that you're talking about in the headline. Then you've got your copy. You, you need to kind of open with that bang. You need to continue that idea or that promise that you made in the headline. You start to tell a story or, you know, adding the facts, figures, whatever that is. And you want to make sure that you're, you're telling that story in a way that your prospect can actually see themselves in the copy that, that you're writing. Then if you can, you want to bribe your reader. And this is something that actually I don't think a lot of people do in sales pages. And I've been rethinking this, uh, you know, as I've start, written a couple of pages recently, how can we make the actual sales page valuable for people? And this is something that came up at, at the Copy Legends event that you and I were at, you know, that taste, give people a taste of the thing that you're selling rather than just teasing it. Um, you don't necessarily have to do that, but if you can make the information that you're giving them in the sales page valuable to them, give them some things that will help them. You know, if you're writing about like a health supplement, give them, you know, some ideas of what they can do to improve their health with, even if they don't buy the product that you're selling, uh, that they can then take and, and benefit from. So you, you give them a taste that you're going to give them that in the letter and give them a reason to continue reading. Then you introduce the expert. And, you know, maybe that's your personal story. If you are the person offering the product or your, your client or the brand and why they are the person that's perfectly positioned to offer the product, there might be more story, uh, or introducing the product at this point where you're starting to provide proof and you're resolving objections that might come up. Uh, and then you're going to sort of add all of that up, you know, 
this, this is the big conclusion of why you need the product that you're introducing. You make the offer, you show the price, you know, if there's a discount or if you can compare it to other solutions to minimize that price, you want to establish a value, you know, this is that value stack that we often see. Here's all the stuff that you get and you know, how, how uh, it will impact your life. Then a guarantee or some other way of removing the risk for trying. And if there's, you know, anything you can add to it, just to even sweeten the deal, they're like, oh, and there's this one other final bonus that really just makes it an easy yes. And then, you know, you, you just kind of want to add the urgency, sum up that idea and, and make that last call to action. So that's how Clayton Makepeace, you know, was, was talking through this in a, a seminar that I went with him. My approach is maybe slightly a, a little different and, and slightly easier. Um, again, big idea, big promise, headline, subhead and bullets that you know create intrigue. And then I like to talk about the problem. I want to agitate that problem just a little bit so that the reader understands how it's showing up in their life, how it's impacting them, you know, what what the uh, problems are that it's causing for them. And I don't do that to make them feel bad. I, you need to make sure that this isn't about you know, oh, you're a horrible person because you haven't done this, but it's rather so that you can empathize with them. It's, you know, it's, it's the thing, you know, it's not your fault that this is happening or, um, you know, this is a new thing that you didn't know about. And so therefore um, there is a solution that you might not be aware of. So we're, we're empathizing rather than agitating. I like to introduce the solution, talking about what it is, how it works, a good time to talk about a unique mechanism if there is one or a selling proposition, uh, introduce the expert, why they're the person, a little bit more detail on that solution, proof objections, like I just said on Clayton's um, template, and then minimize the price, offer a guarantee, add some urgency, and that final call to action. So it, mine's a little bit simpler as I go through, but I oftentimes will refer to that first template just to say, is there something I could be doing here to make it a little bit more persuasive, or is there information that I haven't added? So that that's a lot. That's a long answer. Um, but I'm curious, like, how does your process differ from that? Yeah, well, I was using Clayton's outline as well for a while and then kind of moved away from it more recently because we've been studying with Todd Brown. And so I really liked his E5 model and how he lays out a sales page. But now that you're sharing Clayton's, I was like, oh, yeah, what I did love about Clayton's is that he does um, bribe you to stay on the page. And there is that payoff. So I may think about, okay, am I actually doing that now with my sales pages and really delivering on that payoff and teasing that payoff to get people to stay? But anyway, now with the new, the kind of the new model I'm using, it's not dramatically different. I'd say the difference I hear from you as you're talking through your process is that I introduce the unique mechanism really early in the sales page and um, I introduce the offer after. So I really want to get the reader excited about the unique mechanism. I want them to fully understand the unique mechanism. And I even introduce like the face of the brand because for a lot of my clients, they're, you know, it's a personality led business or brand. And so that story is really important. So I'll introduce, I'll tease the unique mechanism early and then introduce the story of the founder and then deliver on the unique mechanism and actually break it apart and talk about what it is. So it's really clear. And once I do that, I'll address all the hesitations that someone might have. Well, I mean, that, that the prospect does have about that unique mechanism. So there are tons of questions you could pull together to address those hesitations one by one, ultimately so that 
the person reading it is like, this unique mechanism sounds amazing. And I believe this could work for me. I believe this is what can solve my problem. And once you do that and you've addressed all those hesitations, that's when I'll introduce the offer. And really the unique mechanism is just a piece of the offer. It's how you deliver that solution. But the offer becomes much larger. There are many components to the offer that I can then dig into. You know, there might be a community element or there could be coaching calls and there could be, a, you know, a vault with different master classes. Um, so then I can really lean into the offer. And at that point, it probably is really similar to the, the Clayton structure that you're using or the, the one that you just shared with us where it's about, okay, hitting them with the guarantee that's believable and um, the bonuses and really just making sure that the offer stack, when you show the value, that that seems believable and it's not hypey. And that's where, um, at least with a lot of my clients, I've had to kind of tone it down and recommend to them that we really look at the numbers we're sharing because some of them seem so outrageous that it's like, you're losing, you're losing my trust here because you're telling me this one bonus is worth $20,000 and it's not believable. So that's the piece that I focus a lot of attention on too. But that's roughly the process. So not dramatically different from what you shared. So uh, I want to ask you about that value part, because I've heard this rule, you know, the, the full price or the actual value should only be no more than 10 times the price that you're paying for the thing. Uh, I actually had a conversation recently with somebody else who, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about it and said, even that feels sometimes too high. So how do you think about that actual value versus the price you're paying so that it is a believable number. And, and I know there are rules like, okay, if you couldn't actually sell it for $20,000, you shouldn't say you sell it for $20,000. Like, so, it, you know, if you have a bonus that you've sold for $70 or $700 or whatever that is, that's fair game. But like you said, so, you know, I've seen offers. It's like you get $38,000 of value yeah. today for $78 and just like, no, that's not, yeah. that's not right. Yeah, it triggers a skeptical mind to wonder what's, you know, this seems off. I don't mind if it's a big number as far as value, as long as the math adds up. And if I can, I mean, I kind of want to break it down line item by line item, and it's got to make sense to me. And I think, I think we could actually spend a lot more time on this portion of the sales page and even add more context below. Because I feel like right now it's just a line item and it's like this, this value, what you're getting it for. But if we could even build out it section by section to make an argument for why it's actually valued at $10,000, um, people will read it and then they'll, they'll understand the scope of it and how much value is in the larger, the larger offer. So I think it just it could use um, more attention and we probably move through it too quickly and just assume the person will trust the numbers we're throwing out there. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. The moving through it too quickly, I think is really important because we do, I, I think we do this on sales calls. We do this anytime we're talking about money. Oftentimes is we, we want to skip that hard discussion. You know, it is what it is and we'll just skip over it and offer that quick guarantee. And I think there's a lot of value in taking the time to address why the price is what it is. Maybe comparing it. Dan Kennedy always taught about uh, um, making comparisons apples to oranges. So like if you're selling a course, you want to compare the price, say, to coaching because it gives you a, a more beneficial frame for the value that you're getting. 
that's not always the right thing to do, but by comparing it to something that makes the price really understandable, that minimizes it, you know, the investment, not in a manipulative way, but in a way so that people can really understand the value that they're getting. I, I, I agree. We probably skip, you know, I, looking at my own pages, it's usually only a paragraph or two where I'm talking about pricing and I don't go into it much more than that. And there's probably some value in doing that. Well, yeah. And another example is one of a client has a coaching certification program and it's, it's top notch. Like it's credible. It's, it's quite incredible. Um, and the value, if you get certified as a coach, there is a value there. That certification is, is worth money. There is a certain average salary that you could say is associated with having a certification in a first year salary for a business coach or any type of coach. So I think that number, if you pull it from research and it's a real number, and it's like traditionally first year business coaches make this much and annually, that's a stat you could bring in to say this value is here. It's actually $38,000 because that is the traditional amount most coaches make in their first year. So this is what that certification is worth in that line item. So I think maybe we just need to pull in more more research and more stats into that so it feels like it's actually like we back up everything else with claims and we're so worried about citing everything with research, but then we just skip over it in that section. So I'll have to pay more attention to it too. I'm also curious, do you think about the different stages of awareness, you know, and I think my preference is to only be writing to, you know, one particular audience, but sometimes you're writing a sales page, maybe it's a web page that's also functioning as a sales page and you have to address more than one audience. You know, maybe there are ready buyers, but there are also some people who uh, you know, need some more convincing or they need to understand the problem better. So how do you address that those different stages of awareness when you're writing a sales letter? Yeah, I think when when in doubt, I'll just go with pain and agitating pain to start just to kind of make sure I cast a wider net to pull people in in case they maybe aren't as aware, but they're feeling the pain. I feel like that's safer. Um, and because I feel like I feel pretty good about the way I talk about pain, just the same way you were talking about, I love talking about pain points. I love agitating pain because I think that's the biggest opportunity to make people feel less alone in this world. So it's like, if you care about people, you got to talk about pain and talk about the hard things to make them feel understood and less lonely and less ashamed. And so um, if I have any chance to talk about pain, I'm going to do it. So I rarely will skip over unless it's really like, okay, we've covered that. It's ridiculous to talk about that again. We got to move on to the next uh, phase of awareness. I feel like objections or, or the portion of the the sales page where you're offering proof and objections is another place where you can address different audiences through those kinds of objections. Uh, you know, somebody who is maybe problem aware versus solution aware may have slightly different objections. Mm -hmm. And that's another way to, you know, talk to the different audiences in different ways, not always, but you know, a, a good place to address those different audiences. But I, I mean, ultimately in some cases we ought to be recommending to our clients that they segment those audiences and talk to each one differently. You know, somebody who is product aware and ready to buy probably doesn't need a 10,000 page, you know, uh, or 10,000 word sales page. Um, but somebody who is solution aware or, you know, problem aware may need that. And so, 
rather than showing up as that order taker, the copywriter who's just going to do the thing, you know, the client says, I need a sales page for this, really diving into who you're talking to. And if there are different audiences, maybe an opportunity to recommend to your client, hey, we have two or three different audiences here, and they really ought to be getting different messages. And whether we set those up as separate sales pages or we use technology to you know, add blocks of copy, depending on who they are and how they're segmented or tagged in a system, uh, you know, I mean, either way could work, but there's an opportunity there to help our clients talk to the right people in the right way. Yeah. I think most of my clients aren't quite at that stage where they're like, where they're able to do that logistically on and on the back end to set that up. I think it's a good direction to go. And for anyone whose clients are at that level, if you can come in and make those recommendations and even set up segmentation for them, I think it would go a long way. Um, I think part of it's just like knowing your client base and knowing if that's where they're at or not. For me, I look at the email sequence as the best way to really reach those different levels because if there's someone who's ready to buy, you can make sure you really speak to them in the first few emails and then maybe speak to the person who's more skeptical in the FAQ email and speak to someone who really cares about social proof and FOMO in a different you know, social proof case study packed email. So I think that's why it's great when you can do both emails and the sales page because you can really address all the types of buyers in your email sequence um, and not feel the pressure to like have multiple versions of the sales page if you can't quite do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the email because oftentimes they go together. You know, we need to drive traffic to the sales page and oftentimes we'll use email to do that. And there's a little bit of a debate whether you should use emails to sell or you should just like get the click and then, you know, use the sales page to sell. My Having read a lot of your emails, you seem to be somewhere in the middle, like where you sell a bit with the email, but also then click over to the page. I think, you think I about that to, any differently? I think I just want to sell an email. I think I just am like, I don't want to waste a second with you clicking over to the page. If I can sell you in the email, I want to do that. But I also realize I used to try to do everything in one email, which I think a lot of newer copy, copywriters try to do. It's like we want to hit a guarantee and we also want to have social proof. So we'll share some testimonials and we also want to talk about pain points in one email. And now I really break it apart. So like we're only tackling one idea in each email and there's like an objective for each email. It's just purely let's address top three hesitations. So I think that it makes it easier to use the email as a sales tool when it's more focused rather than like dropping everything into it. But yeah, I'd rather be more aggressive with email and get them really excited and ready to buy. But I know people, you know, other copywriters have a different approach and just want to get them to the page. Yeah, I think the opposite approach is that you know, quick click. And there's a, there's an email template uh, or, or formula that I've heard other people talk about. It's DIC, you know, a quick idea that disrupts the pattern or that catches attention. Uh, the I is for like intrigue. So you, you know, have a sentence or two that creates intrigue around whatever it is that you want them to do. And then C is for click. Uh, you know, and you get the click that takes them over. Usually you would use that with uh, a blind link, you know, where you're not really talking about the product. You're just trying to get people interested enough to, to you know, hit that link, that click, and then let the sales page do the work. Um, and, you know, the, the the other approach then is to really sell in the email. And then the sales page almost acts as a, a second person on the team to back up the messaging on the that you just sent out in the email. Yeah, I'd, pre I'd prefer that path. I don't know. It's, it feels a little safer to me to do it that way. 
I'm not sure I have a preference. I think I kind of do both. It just really Yeah, I think depends. you do both. Uh, I so. mean, it's always good to try the path that you're not on. So as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, I should probably try the blind click and like to tease it a little bit more because it's just not my go-to strategy. Yeah, definitely worth thinking about. Okay, so do you have any secrets <laughs> when it comes to sales pages that you like kind of hold to yourself, you don't talk about, you can reveal for our audience? Oh, I saw that question that you shared with me. And I was like, I don't have secrets. Um, I'm sure we all do, though. I think one for me is that I'm quite aware of now is just trying to appeal to different, not just even different buyers, but just different types of brains, different types of people and thinkers in the world and understanding all all the different types of intelligence that exist and um, trying to appeal to different thinkers, whether it's like neurodivergent thinkers. Um, there's so much research now about uh, out there available that I think there's a big opportunity to make sure that a sales page or an email sequence is really speaking to those different segments of your audience in a way that really connects. So if they're more of a visual person, really maybe using more visuals on the sales page. Or maybe if there's someone who really needs a lot more research, pulling in more stats. Um, so really thinking about it that way, that's something that's not new to me, but something I'm more interested in doing more of and experimenting with. So I don't know if that's a secret or not, but I think that's the biggest opportunity now um, with sales pages and any type of sales sequences. Yeah, I think, and mine, I don't know if mine is a secret either, but I don't hear many people talking about this. And I think uh, it's one of the most helpful things that I do when I'm writing a sales page. And that is I want to actually record or sit in on a sales call uh, for my client. So I actually listen to my client selling the thing to an actual prospect. Uh, I want to hear how they talk about the features, how they contextualize those features into benefits. I want to hear uh, the objections that the person on the sales call raises and how my client talks about uh, or overcomes those objections. I want to hear how they present the offer because if they do it well, and, and obviously if our clients have proven the product by selling it to real people, that language will also work on a sales page. And so if I can't sit in on them, I ask my clients to record uh, two or three sales calls and then I will transcribe those. I will sit and watch them and hopefully find some language that I can pull from the way they're selling it. You know, if they are, you know, if they can sell it and close a sale on a call, that language will work really well uh, most of the time on a sales page. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that actually makes me think of something useful that, a client shared with me recently is one of her team members was selling, but she was actually selling over an email exchange with a potential, with a prospect. And it was, you know, she's a very patient person, the salesperson. And the, the email exchange went back and forth over probably 10 emails. And it was with a prospect, kind of the ideal prospect, the one who has all the questions and like every hesitation. And um, so she was smart enough to share that whole email sequence with me so I could see how that played out, all of her responses, um, all of the questions. And it was gold. Like it was gold for the sales page. It was amazing to drip that out into different emails where it made sense. So I think that's something that we can definitely advise our clients and ask them to share. Like you asked them to share that with you. Can I watch a recording of a sales call or just be there live with you? Or can you start to save some of your sales 
emails with your customer service team so I can see the back and forth and understand how you address some of these questions. That was so helpful. So um, yeah, we can definitely do more of that. I was also thinking this one, again, doesn't feel like a secret, but it's something I did not do for a long time and I'm really pushing to do it now is to interview people who did not purchase, who were close to purchasing, um, but didn't make it across the finish line. And it's not always easy to get those interviews because sometimes those people are sheepish about it. They might feel guilty. They might feel bad, depending on how the sales conversation went, um, that they didn't jump in and join. But if you can book those calls with those people, like that information is golden because then you have not just messaging, but you have insights you can share with your client as far as like, hey, maybe if we changed the offer slightly and we added this and maybe did a less of this and talked about this differently, we could get people like this person who we know is qualified to join this, this program or to pay for this product. And so I think, you know, all of us have the opportunity to do that, not just to talk with the star students. I'm really less interested in talking to the best student or the best customer. Um, that's helpful, but it's it's less helpful now than it used to be. So I really want to come in and I don't just want to do the sales page. I want to advise clients ideally on, hey, let's rethink the offer. Let's rethink how you're creating the experience um, and come in at a deeper level. And so that's a way you can do it. Yeah, I was recently writing an abandoned cart sequence for a client, and after the you know the three reminders, hey, you left this in your cart, and make sure you you know last chance to get this at this price, those kinds of things. The last email in the sequence, it doesn't ask for the sale. It was it was rather like, hey, we hit reply and tell me why you decided not to buy. And I don't expect that that email is going to get a ton of responses because they've gone through an abandoned cart sequence and not purchased, but even three or four responses to an email like that can be gold because it uncovers objections that clearly we were not able to tackle either on the sales page or in the abandoned cart sequence. And so those responses can be incredibly valuable. And that's something that people can add, not just to an abandoned cart sequence, but you know, if you're able to tag people in your system you know, via email, you know they've checked out the page, maybe you see them show up on your site because you've got that tracking in place. And you're able to reach out to them with that kind of a question. Just, you know, tell me why you didn't buy, what kept you from buying. Um, like you said, it's that's amazingly useful for reworking and repurposing sales pages. Yeah. And one other idea that, again, seems pretty simple and obvious, but I didn't do it for a long time. Um, we've started doing it with TCC. And so um, when you have, if you're selling a course or any type of program, um, this doesn't really apply to products necessarily, but you could apply this to, to products in a different way. It helps to show like what people are going to experience, what they're going to get visually. Again, this is like appealing to the visual-minded people in your audience um, who may resonate more with a visual. So, for example, in our group programs, like the one we're launching right now, the annual planning offer, the Sprint we have calendar images that you can see on the sales page where you can see, okay, here's when it starts. Here's when there's a group kickoff session. Here's when the first sprint exercise is. Here's when I have some time to complete that. Here's when I have the seven-day follow-up sprint. And then here's the final session. And it's all plugged into a visual calendar with, you know, color-coded uh, to show, like, this is what the experience is. This is when things are happening. 
And I feel like it makes it more tangible for people who are interested, but maybe just need to really believe like this is happening and and they need to feel that urgency. This is coming up soon. It also helps for planners who want to understand how this is going to fit into their busy life and their schedule. Um, And I think for a lot of programs where there are moving components and there are lots of different calls and deliverables coming out at different times, it's helpful for people to understand and to be able to grasp it if you can create that calendar. doesn't take a lot of time. Rather than just sharing the text, which is what we typically do, it's like a bullet, bullet, bullet of all the dates, times. Great, do that too, but then also pair that with a visual side of it. So um, so it feels real and, and I can fit it into my life. Yeah, there's a lot of things I think we could do differently visually on our sales pages yeah. that as copywriters, we don't usually consider that. Obviously, there are designers who specialize in sales pages who are good at this stuff, but it would be useful for many of us to just be more aware of how we're communicating visually so we can give those kinds of ideas to the client or the client's design team, whoever it is that's putting that together. We do that sometimes when we go wireframe, you know, we can say, hey, an image of this would be useful here, uh, but even more specific, like, uh, you know, how does the program flow go is a great idea. Great addition. That's a great opportunity for us as writers to do that. I do think there's still a huge gap from my experience with designers and writers where like the designers I've worked with who are great at what they do, most of them still do not understand long form sales pages. And so number one, they're usually overwhelmed by the amount of copy I send to them. So they're usually defensive right away because they're like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with this? And then they don't really know what to do with it. And so um, if we can really step in and lean more into the visual side, it'll make their job so much easier. And that could be something that maybe, Rob, we create as a training, just like what else we can do visually, not necessarily wireframing, but what, how can we turn the sales page into visual components that are key that we can add as copywriters to strengthen the page? That's a great idea. We should add that to the Copywriter Underground at uh, some point in the very near yeah. future. Yes. So uh, another question, because obviously the best way to get better at sales pages is to actually write them, do them, get feedback, possibly from a coach or a mentor. Uh, client feedback can be useful, but clients oftentimes don't understand what we're really trying to do either. So that's not always the best place to get feedback. Uh, but do you study sales pages? Like, do, like, how do you improve your skills? What are you looking for so that you're staying on top of your game? Yeah, I think that's a, such a great question. And it prob- it's probably more triggering for me, Rob, I think, because I'm like, oh, shoot, there's more I should be doing. And so when I hear that, I'm thinking, okay, I just finished a couple sales pages over the last six months. Why am I not having one of my mentors look at it, have access to some mentors, like look at it and critique it because you're right. My clients lo- like my clients love it. And then they share the stats, like, did it perform well? Okay. Yeah. It performed pretty well, but that's all you get back. And so um, for me, it would be that critique that I'm looking for. That's what, that's what I'm hungry for. It's like, tell me from someone I trust who's experienced, like rip this apart. Um, but it is funny that like, I haven't asked for that recently. And like, why haven't I, you know, well, there are many reasons why I haven't, but to me, that's more helpful than anything else. Yes, staying aware of what's happening in this space. I would love to study it more. That's probably just not where I have capacity right now, um, but critiquing would be most helpful. And we do critiques in the Copywriter Underground. So like anyone listening has an opportunity. If you don't have that mentor, 
we could be that. Rob does it every week. You could get your copy. It doesn't have to be a sales page critiqued in the Copywriter Underground. Yeah, I love studying sales pages. I love reading them. There's a little bit of a danger because some of them are so good that you're studying them. You're thinking, oh, I actually need this. I, I want this. But those are actually really good sales pages to study because you can you need to take a step back and say, okay, why is this sales page working? Why is it making me feel this way? What are What is the writer here? Or what is the expert here doing that's prompting me to want to purchase this? You know, what are the what are the needs that they're identifying, or how are they resolving my objections? So I, I think it's really useful to you know be open to that. You know, when an offer drops into your email, click over to the sales page and just take a look at it. How does it make you feel? You know, does it? Does the headline make you curious or are you clicking away, you know, with the within the first minute or two, in which case, why? Why did you click away? Why was it boring to you or why did it not catch your attention? And just understanding the the structure and what's happening on a sales page, I think, can be immensely useful. I know some people talk about handwriting sales pages to you know learn the language or whatever. That never worked for me. It just made my hand hurt. And I'm not sure that copying did the same thing as evaluating does in trying to understand you know what's going on on a sales page but i do think that it's a useful practice if you want to write sales copy even emails um, sales emails is to look at the thing that you want to write and uh, evaluate you know is this working on me and if so why and if not what would i do differently and really understanding that will also help you become a better writer if that expert coach or mentor isn't available to you right now. Yeah. And just know yourself too, and know how you work best. Because for some people like me, um, if I see a lot of offers, I get really overwhelmed with like all the different routes I could take and strategies. And it like really just causes me to freeze. So for me, I would probably save them, like just put them in a folder. And then maybe it's once a month, you give yourself time to review them and audit them and ask yourself those questions. Or maybe it's even once a quarter if that's the best approach for you, but um, just know kind of how you operate and maybe it is getting critiqued and like, that's the best way you learn is by getting that feedback. Um, but handwriting, like I've heard so many people on our podcast recommend it. And I think it's great if that works for you. I know it's worked for many copywriters to handwrite sales pages. And like, I don't want to take away from that. But anytime I hear that advice, I'm like, you clearly don't have three kids that you're taking. Like, it just does not, you're not speaking to the right person. I am not the right target audience for the for that offer. I cannot comprehend that. Um, well, so just audience, know what you're capable of at the time, how you one, learn best. Sorry. Yeah. One audience that it might actually work for is anybody who's really just struggling with the language. Like English is a second language. Yep. Obviously, writing the way that a great writer, like it, that, that translates from your hand into your brain and that might be helpful. But yeah, like you, I just, I feel like the handwriting or the copying isn't the thing that makes it work for me. It's the understanding what the sales page is doing, trying to, you know, basically uh, deconstruct the persuasion that's going on so that I can understand that better and possibly learn from it. Yeah. And, and like even stepping further back, it's like, what is one thing you can do every time you work on a sales page? Or if you're not even working on sales pages yet, but you want to, like, what is one thing you can do to improve this month? And just like break it down bite size so it doesn't feel so overwhelming because there are millions of sales pages you can you can study. And Rob and I just shared two different approaches to writing sales pages. Like there's so many different ways you can do it. But what if you just focus on, you know what? The value stack part of my sales page is typically pretty weak. 
I, we talked about it today. I'm going to just strengthen that, or I'm just going to strengthen the guarantee. I don't have a great guarantee. So how can I focus on that part of my page? So for future projects, I've got a really good template I can use. And like, that's my win for the, the month. Yeah. I've, I've got a, you know, download folder with probably 1500 sales pages saved into it. They're, they're not all winners. You know, I basically, you know, I get the email, I click over to the sales page and I'll you know save it as a PDF or save it as a, a TIFF so that I can go back and look at it later. But having a resource like that, where, you know, when I get stuck, I'm thinking, you know, I, I want to reword my guarantee in a new way. It can be really useful to look at the way other copywriters have done it and say, yeah, maybe I'll try this approach. You know, maybe there is a way to word a guarantee that doesn't actually trigger the response. Wait a second, why do I need a guarantee? Is this thing not actually going to work the way that it should? Which is a valid objection when people say, you know, if it doesn't work, we'll give you your money back. Well, you just spent you know five thousand words telling me how great it is and how it works. Why would you plant that idea in my head? So anyway, there's there's all kinds of things that we can learn by studying what other people are doing. It's best if you know that the sales pages actually work and sold. Uh, but that's not always the case. And, and we can still learn from the way that others are ideating and coming up with copy for the products that they sell. You should share that swipe file in the underground. I should. Maybe would, I'll, uh, I'll spend a weekend organizing the stuff. But I mean, I, I'm not joking when I say I've probably got 1,500 of them in my download folder because well, I, I save everything. So valuable, and for people like me who are not as great at organizing and saving those files, that's so valuable. Like just to know that that's somewhere where I have access. So I think that would be a great addition to the underground. Yeah, add it to the underground, or possibly to our copy course. We'll we'll see. Okay. Uh, any last thoughts on sales pages or, you know, advice for people who want to move into writing more of them, Kira? Yeah, I did. I did have some other thoughts we didn't get to. I think just the, the big one is that at least in the space that I work in, and we talk to a lot of copywriters and we talk to a lot of business owners. So I feel like, you know, I'm pretty open-minded um, and have decent exposure. I still feel like sales pages, it's hard to find a really good long form sales page copywriter. Like it's still, I know they're out there. I'm not saying they aren't out there, but it's a lot harder than finding an email copywriter. And I'm also an email copywriter, so I'm not trash talking email copy. It's important, but it's so much harder to find a long form copywriter who understands everything we talked about today and has their own formula and ideas and is testing and, and studying it. And so if you're looking for an opportunity, that is the area to specialize in, to come into the room and be the only one who's like, yeah, I this is what I do. This is my lead, my lead product. This is my signature package. Like this is what I obsess over. Um, that's kind of how I got started. Just saying, that's what I want to do. Sales pages. That's it. And I think there's it, not much has changed, even though there's so many copywriters working today. Like there just aren't as many really good ones who understand a long form sales page. Long form is hard. Yeah, I mean, carrying carrying an idea through six thousand or ten thousand words is not easy, and it's a skill. And so, if you can develop that skill, if you can provide that service, it is incredibly valuable. And I mean, we didn't we didn't mention this earlier when we we're talking about landing these projects, but because the sales page is so closely tied to the actual sale of the product, it's oftentimes really easy to justify higher fees 
for sales pages than it is for say top of funnel content like case studies, blog posts, because you know there's three or four steps often between the blog post that they read and the product they buy. Not so with sales pages. This is the last thing they see other than the purchase page before they before they make that purchase. And so it can oftentimes be really easy to say, hey, you know, your product is selling for $2,000. You know, I can increase your sales by 10%. I, I mean, obviously I'm, make, I'm pulling these numbers out of my head, but you know, I can increase your sales by uh, 10%. You know, if we do this and this, you know, now what you might've sold for three or $4,000 a sales page, you could easily justify three, five, 10 times that because of the multiple of what that number looks like in your client's business. All, obviously that depends on the products that you're selling and the audience you're selling too, but it can be a lot easier to justify higher prices for a sales page. And it makes it so much easier to write an email sequence. Like if I, it's harder for me to write an email sequence for a launch if I have not written a sales page or I'm using someone else's sales page, it's okay. It's so much trickier, but if I have my own, then it's like I'm just pulling pieces of it into the email sequence, so it makes the job so much easier. So I guess all that to say, like there's still there's so much opportunity with sales pages, and if you're already doing them, great. There's so much opportunity for all of us to get better at them um, and try something new and add something new to those packages. Definitely a product worth adding to your business if you're a copywriter who wants to write sales copy. Maybe we should have one more question, get to know you question, lightning round before we jump. What did you eat for breakfast today? That's actually embarrassing today um, because I've been trying to skip breakfasts, uh, you know, just to be a little healthier. And I usually start off my day with some protein at noon, but I made chocolate chip cookies last night. And so I wow. had three chocolate chip cookies for breakfast. And they wow, busted. Phenomenal. Yeah, I know. Busted. Total honesty here. What did you have for breakfast? I, I had some toast. I had some toast. Not as exciting. I, if I'll I had chocolate chip cookies. cookies in the house, I would have had them. Oh, no, I did have Nutella. I had Nutella on my toast because first it was just butter. And then the Nutella was out. And I was like, oh, this would be so much better with Nutella. <laughs> so we both got our chocolate today. I might have to go uh, have another cookie and add some Nutella. That sounds delicious. <laughs> That's the end of our discussion. And when we were talking about all of the swipes that I've collected over the past few years, I'm not kidding, it's more than a thousand. I don't know how many it is, but um, it's more than that. We mentioned that maybe we should share them, but before I spend my weekend organizing them to make them easier to browse and use and for me to share them with anybody, I wanna know if that's actually something that you would value as a copywriter. If it is, will you just drop me a quick email at rob at thecopywriterclub.com and let me know. Um, and then be sure to jump on our email list so that I can share the details of how how you would get them if I do end up making those available. We might put them into a, a course or you know, share them in the underground, uh, or we may just you know, share them out as a public service. It really just kind of depends on how much interest we see in that kind of thing. So if you are interested in those, just let me know. And then as we wrap, I just want to give you one final reminder to check out the Copywriter Underground. Go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU to join the very best community for copywriters who want to get better at this thing that we all do. The resources there are an amazing value. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Bryce. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave a review of the show. Of course, you can also visit visit Spotify or Stitcher or wherever it is that you listen and leave your review there. And then don't 
miss our other podcasts at AIforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. I've had some really good interviews recently about AI and what the changes have uh, happened over the last couple of months. You can also watch that on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.